Do you make dinner every night? Does cooking for your family make you happy or is it a chore? Roblin Rollins and David Livert have studied these questions. We discuss these questions and more on Tip of the Tongue, a Nitty Grits podcast. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Roblin Rollins and David Levert. Roblin is professor at Williams Patterson University of New Jersey, and David is professor of psychology at Penn State Lehigh Valley. So welcome to both of you. Thank you for having us. Happy to be here. So today we want to talk about your fabulous book, Making Dinner, How American Home Cooks Produce and Make Meaning Out of the Evening Meal. That happens to be a subject that's close to my heart. I think that home cooking is so often not covered well in the press or in the media or whatever. And we do a lot of focus on eating out and on celebrity chefs and people like that. How did you come to look at this subject? The Genesis story. Okay, well, <laughs> the... the... The beginning of all of this in terms of the book really came about when we were hosting a weekend uh, get together of friends at our home in New Jersey. And that, and this was some time ago, the Sunday Times Magazine featured an article about the death of home cooking, which is something that has been Honestly, since the 1890s, people have been writing and being concerned about the death of home cooking. This one featured some great photographs of very high-end, you know, sub-zero refrigerators and a kitchen very nicely laid out with takeout containers only and cobwebs (laughs) and things like that. Then the article was about how much people were investing in kitchens and cooking utensils, but the idea being that they weren't really cooking. We looked around and all of our friends and including myself and virtually everyone that I know in my friends and families cook at home on a pretty regular basis. So we thought this, this just isn't correct. And so we set out to interview cooks. We interviewed 50 home cooks across the country. We were primarily, one of the things we were primarily interested in is how cooks decide for Americans who are not food insecure, who have the ability to be able to afford most of what's there, the grocery stores are packed with tens of thousands of options, right? So how from all of that does a cook decide exactly what are they gonna buy? What are they gonna purchase? What are they, how are they gonna prepare it? What are they gonna put on the table for food, for, for dinner? And that was one of the things we were interested in. So what we did in addition to interviewing the cooks, 
in depth about their cooking practices, about what it meant to them, about what their motivations were, is that they filled out a cooking diary for two weeks in which they documented everything that they cooked, how they felt when they were cooking it, how they came to decide what they were going to cook, whether it was a success, so on and so forth, for what ended up to be over 300 different meals. So researchers call this a mixed methods approach because it's a combination of something like an ethnography, uh, long depth interview, flexibly structured with the cooks in the household, as well as this cooking journal that we talked about. And when we talk about who we talk to, the sampling, uh, we were uh, by no means looking to derive a representative sample of the United States cooks. We wanted to bracket some things to exclude some types of households to be able to focus in on the issue of decision-making and meaning-making. So for example, we focus on households with the wherewithal to buy their own food. No one was on food stamps or anything like that. We focus typically on households, multiple person adult households, typically with kids, but not always. One or both of the adults were working. Um, so, and we were able to sample from all over the regions of the United States. But as I said, by no means is it a representative sample. Our, our focus was on understanding what's going on in the mind of the cook, of that meaning making. Although we did draw some statistical conclusions as well that we can talk about. So when the net was cast, did people identify themselves to you and kind of propose themselves for your study? We went through a lot of different ways to get our sample. As I said, we did kind of want to have a sample that was more balanced across the country, and we achieved that to some extent. But because it was, you know, voluntary, we did spread a wide net at both of our institutions in terms of, of soliciting people who would be interested in participating. We also went through a, um, a CSA that we're members of to get some. We also did snowball sampling, which is where, you know, then people who are in the study suggest others who might be willing to participate. And we tried to, in choosing people, what was really important to us was that we didn't get just foodies or keen cooks, right? We wanted to have a range of people. So we were very careful in how we put out the solicitation to say, we're not looking just for gourmet cooks. We're looking for everybody who can cook. And I'm pleased to say that we did in fact get some small number of persons who cook every day out of obligation, who don't enjoy it, Right. Um, and it doesn't really mean a lot to them apart from that they need to do it. And I thought that was important because oftentimes also, as you said, there's been a focus in the literature on professional cooks. There's also been a focus on the literature on good cooks, I guess, if that's one way to say it. Right. You know, people who are really into cooking and not a lot looking at cooking as another everyday chore that you do for your family, right? And so that's one thing we wanted to particularly look at. I should also point out that we use the cook's definition of dinner to define whether or not they had dinner. We certainly 
we didn't disqualify a meal from being a dinner if it were a sandwich or something that was microwaved. We basically asked them, did you eat at home tonight or did you go out? And if they ate at home, they told us about the preparation and that was the dinner. So we're from the outset, we had a, a very specific focus on the meaning that was made by the cook of what they were doing. Okay, okay. I think the, the thing that I found the most interesting was the way you divided the cooks themselves into categories. Did you have those categories in mind before you began or did those emerge as you read their diaries? They emerged. So they came from the interviews. They came from the food diaries in terms of looking at. So we had um, really five types of cooks that we, that we saw. Two had to do with the time dimension. Time is really important in terms of home cooking. It is the one thing, a scarcity of time is the one thing that takes basically the joy out of cooking. It was the thing that transformed everyday cooking into a chore, even for people who otherwise really enjoy cooking is when they had time constraints. Also, another problem with time is as families in particular got older, as the kids got older, there was more of a problem of asynchrony, which means that you know, kids going to sports, kids going to music lessons, various things, the families having to eat sometimes in shifts or things like that to, to accommodate those schedules. So we had a dimension of time and there we saw on one end of the dimension was planful cooks. There weren't that many of these, but these were people who planned out their menus, maybe a week in advance, some did even more. One couple had a folder and they chose very, you know, specifically. More cooks had the aspiration to be planful, like they thought this would be good, they could save money and it would be easier, but they found it in the end, they couldn't do it. Then we had another type of cook <coughs> that we called improvisational. And these are cooks who don't plan at all. They look at what they've got, what they're in the mood for, and they make it. These are cooks who tend to have um, pretty high level cooking skills. They also, they have to be confident enough or at any rate have maybe eaters who won't reject the food or as one couple said, you know, then they, it, it then becomes a salad or sandwich day, right? Or a order pizza day if it doesn't work out. But a lot, a number of cooks were improvisational cooks who don't plan ahead and that's fine with them. That's the way that they like to do it. We had a few cooks who use recipes, follow recipes very firmly. Those tended to be cooks who had less confidence in their cooking and they found that to help them to feel better. Um, in terms of the other types of cooks, we had what we called family first cooks, traditional cooks and keen cooks. Family, and there's overlap between these, like one cook can be more than one of these things. Like you can be family first and keen. Mm -hmm. A keen cook is someone whose motivation in cooking is to challenge themselves and to cook better, different sorts of things, right? They have high cooking skills. They're critical of their own cooking, right? But they really get a lot of enjoyment and pleasure out of cooking. They're, they're just keen cooks, right? Um, then family first cooks are those for whom the most important thing is to provide a healthy meal for their family. 
That also means a meal their family likes enough to eat it, because of course they realize if nobody eats it, it's got no nutritional value whatsoever, right? <laughs> These cooks also um, are very sensitive then to criticism of their cooking because they put a lot into it. It's very important to them. It's part of their sense of themselves, oftentimes as a mother or as a parent, that's the way they care and nurture their family is through cooking. Then we have traditional cooks, and these are cooks who cook what they consider to be traditional to their family. Do you want to talk about traditional cooks, David? Well, it, it, it might be a deceptive term, because when we think traditional cooks, we think, well, okay, so the cook is interested in cooking the traditional cuisine of their ethnic background. But by tradition, we mean their childhood memories of dinner. So I may... You know, I may have been raised a German, but my mother loved to cook Italian food. So those Italian dishes become part of what we consider a traditional meal. So every household, every cook has a tradition and a, a taste memory in terms of, of their own household cuisine. And these cooks are those who are interested in reproducing those tastes and that experience uh, for their own children and their own household. And that experience is not just the dish itself, but it may involve certain nuances of preparation. So for example, for, um, for one cook, a traditional meal might've included a dessert my grandmother used to make. Okay. But for another cook, one of the features of a traditional meal was the uh, use of uh, out of the refrigerator crescent rolls uh, because that was the taste memory and that was what going to grandmother's was. So pop and fresh turns out to be a traditional meal. And this is important to think about because providing the meal, making the family dinner is about so much more than just providing the food. It's about the experience. It's about the relationships. It's about how people think about themselves and their families and how they want their families to look and feel. So for example, the couple that David's talking about that used the canned crescent rolls have an extremely different family than the families that they grew up in. And so it seems, and they're, they're conscious of this. And Making the dinner to smell, to look, to be more like your family dinner at home as you were growing up. And of course, don't forget, for most of our, our households, not all of them, most of them were coupled. So then you have two different family memories that you need to be dealing with as well. But there's something about recreating that experience that knits together a family and it is something that cooks know that they're doing um, and it's part of what I think makes cooking so important to them. One of the things that we did in, in the cooking diaries is that we asked people for each meal what their motivations were. You know, were they looking to cook a healthy meal? Were they looking to try something new? Were they this, that and the other a bunch of different things? And the thing that most people checked was something that their family liked and something that was healthy. That had to be compromised sometimes, 
um, because sometimes families like things that are not healthy. Other times it may be difficult. You may not have enough time to cook the healthy thing. In the cooking diaries, we asked them after they had, they reflected on the meals afterward as well. So they talked about how they felt while they were cooking it. You know, traditional cooks were more calm when they were cooking. Teen cooks felt more creative, more valued. Family cooks felt happy, but sometimes not, depending on how it was going. Family cooks oftentimes struggled also with the presence of kids in the kitchen that you're trying to cook for them at the same time they're hanging on your leg is kind of hard. But for success, what was interesting to us is that almost every meal, the cook reflecting back after they've prepared the meal, when they're filling out their diary at the end of the day, marked it as a success, that it was a success. So what we think this shows is that just getting that meal on the table or in a cup to be eaten on the way to music lessons was success for home cooks because they succeeded in what they set out to do, which was to prepare a meal for their family or their household that then would be eaten. And that was what, you know, they really were set out to do. So one of the things that all of this made me think of, of course, is my own life because it was very evocative of a lot of things that are important to me. And uh, so um, I'm going to give you a little bit of that back, some feedback. So on, in the sense of having the dinners that were asynchronous, as you described them, that was very familiar. And so our family decided that it was easier for us to be all together at breakfast than it was to be all together at dinner. And so although we tried to eat together at night as much as we could, we didn't get all worried about the fact that we didn't sit down together and have dinner mm -hmm. together because we knew that we were having breakfast together. And so many of those kinds of how was your day sorts of conversations and just all the other things that come out of those family meals and family conversations that happen around the table happened at breakfast instead of at dinner because that was much more controllable. You know, you had to be at work mm -hmm. or at school or whatever for a certain time. So you could all get up together and then go about your day, but you had sat down together before that. And so that was one of the compromises that we reached that made sense in, in our family when we had lots of kids and whatever, having all kinds of different schedules and meetings at night and all of that kind of stuff. Right. So that was one thing that I, I kind of reacted to um, a sort of sense of, yes, this asynchrony can really interrupt having a family time, but we tried to make it, just move it and said, it doesn't have mm -hmm. dinner, it can be some other time. So that was a, a strong feeling that I had. The other thing is, and this was in my growing up, my mother who worked, now I was born in 1950. So my mother working was not the usual thing anyway, mm -hmm. but my father worked too. I mean, so it wasn't like only my mother. Anyway, 
um, she, coming from this very Italian home, she was the daughter of Italian immigrants. She spent the weekend cooking for the whole week so that when she came home from work, dinner was basically made and all you had to do was heat it or assemble something or like make a salad or something like mm-hmm. that go with it so that it wasn't a nightly let's cook dinner. It was already organized. And I used to do that a lot, not as assiduously as my mother, but um, I, and I, I recognize myself in the improvisational cook because there was never a point. <laughs> right. like open the refrigerator and see what's there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Anyway, I liked all of those things that you recognized about the process in putting your study together. Yeah. We had a we had a couple of cooks that were a mom and a daughter. The daughter about 20-ish, 22, maybe something like that, who was all uh, then the mother worked as well as the father. The daughter cooked some of the evenings herself. The mother did as as your mother had done, and she would make like a giant pan of chicken parm on the weekend, and then they would eat from this. She also had, and another thing that we talk about in the book is that it sometimes can be a struggle to please everyone in the family when some, either people's tastes change over time. One of the things that we find is that some cooks can become entirely different cooks over the course of their lifetime because they're cooking for different people and Also, people themselves change. So one cook, her daughter became a vegetarian, and now she has to change the way that she's cooking. Although she said at first that she was going to make the daughter start cooking for herself, um, but that kind of fell apart. And then the mom was trying more vegetarian things as well, and they were having fun with it. Similarly, empty nesters or people whose children have grown up, we had several of these in our study, and we had two polar opposites. One couple whose children were grown had completely sort of done away with the, uh, well, here's what they did. They each cooked their own food. Oh, They didn't even share the planning. I think they shopped different separately, if I remember correctly, but they ate together. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we didn't have really the back history of how this ended up being compromised, (laughs) but that's what they were doing and they were okay with it. On the other hand, we had another woman who had been a traditional cook. Interestingly, she was a traditional Italian cook, although she herself was Irish, but she married into an Italian family in the Bronx and she learned how to cook from her Italian mother-in-law. And she continues cooking these Italian specialties for her extended family. Now she lives alone, she's a widow. She became very interested in, she became a keen cook now. She's trying new things. She's listening to radio programs about food. She's buying new books. She's trying different kinds of fruits and vegetables that she sees in the shop that she never did try before and really enjoying it, I think, in a way, because she has some time and she's only cooking for herself so she can do, you know, what she likes. So one of the things that's important to us to keep in mind about home cooks is that the cooks themselves change over time. The families and the people they cook for change over time. Um, and so do 
what's available to them. You know, what was available to your uh, mother to cook is not the same as what was available to you and will not be the same uh, as available to your kids either. And that all um, has an influence as well. Right. Yes. So if you were to sum up what it is you think that was the most important things from your study, I would like you to tell me what they are. And I'd also like you to talk a little bit about whether you think this is a a periodic study that will be repeated so that we can see whether things change. Okay, so I think the first thing that is most important is that although we expected when we started out in our study, as I had said earlier, although we expected to find that people were doing more cooking than social critics would have us believe, I really didn't, um, or we really didn't, I think, understand fully how much for many people cooking at home is part of their self-identity, is part of how they think and feel about themselves. That was something that we didn't really understand, I think, particularly in terms of family first cooks and, well, all of the types of cooks, really. So that was um, something that we uh, weren't um, necessarily expecting to find in terms of how much cooking means to people as something that is going on in their everyday lives. You know, one of the things that, that um, I like to say about this is that, you know, so in the 21st century, we don't um, provide medical care for our families as we might've done in the past. We don't build houses for our families. We don't make their clothes. Most of us, some of us still do but we still cook for them. So it is a thing that we do physically, creatively with our hands that expresses our care and our love for our family. And that is something that is very satisfying to people. I think one of the things that struck me was how every evening meal is a reconstruction or a construction. Uh, there are very real pressures that the cook faces in terms of time, in terms of who's in the household, in terms of whose tastes have been accommodated most recently, in terms of what is in the pantry and what is the fridge in the fridge and goals in terms of healthiness and, and diet. All of this every night weighs on the decision-making and the meaning-making uh, of the cook. And it is, and so every cook has a little different context in which they're creating and evaluating what they've done. It's a very reconstructive moment. And as we've pointed out, this can shift dramatically from the cook who is cooking for four children and a partner and who is facing intense time constraints, uh, take that cook, go forward 10 years, they're an empty nester, Uh, They have time to explore and to take risks and to get more exotic in terms of taste. So it's a very fluid experience, but it's one that's reconstructed every day, or at least based on our data, five out of seven days a week. 
So if you do this again, would you see yourself as expanding the number of subjects? Would you, do you think 50 is the right number? Um, what, what kinds of changes or little tweaks would you take in, in your model? When, when you get into uh, numbers, most of the data uh, that we looked at were qualitative. So what we're interested in is how is the number of different patterns and stories that the data tells us, not necessarily statistical tests. Although we did examine, you know, whether the types of cooks that we uh, derived predicted their emotional experience over 300 meals. But so, so the number of subjects is less of an issue. We would try to sample for diversity within certain constraints like we did before. What we're going to see different is the meaning that people are making out of the meal, I would expect, post-COVID. I expect that there's been considerable change in terms of habits, normal expectations, what's expected out of the meal. They still got to make a meal. I mean, and as we return to normal, there will still be the same time pressures that we're facing now or that we faced before the pandemic, but that's what's going to change. Would, would we expand the, the study? One of the things we have thought about doing was actually um, taking these types that we've identified and uh, looking at a larger sample that was more representative and seeing if we could glean some diet implications because there, there are some implications in terms of diet. If you know what motivates the cook, if you know that the cook is motivated either towards a traditional experience that they recall or the challenge that a keen cook pursues or just pleasing the family that a family first cook pursues, uh, that can have implication for what kind of diets and nutritional approaches work and don't work. So that would be one direction. We've thought of others. We have. Um, one of the other things that I'd like to be able to do is to, and, and we were in the process of thinking about doing this, but then COVID sort of interrupted it. I want to go back to as many of our cooks as we can, because, <coughs> because as I said, we have some information about how their cooking practices had changed over time. But if we actually did it in a longitudinal fashion, we could see this playing out in a more detailed way. So I'd love to be able to go back to as many of the cooks as we can um, re-identify and who would want to be willing to do it again. You know, we're so grateful to them to have spent so much time, although most of them said they really enjoyed it and it gave them some insight into their own practices that they hadn't necessarily had before, especially insofar as division of labor is concerned, which is something we haven't talked about in this uh, short interview, but it's a, certainly something we can, um, uh, we can see. We've done some pilot work with food, uh, with uh, food pantry clients, mm -hmm. with uh, people who have to go to food pantries to supplement uh, the food in their household. And, you know, some of the same patterns emerge in terms of motivations and experiences. Um, so I think that's, that's also a direction we'd like to pursue as well. I think it would also be interesting to do a study like this, but with people on particular diets like vegans or vegetarians or whatever, and see whether things that motivated them to, to create these special diets or to 
to adopt mm -hmm. these supplies um, is is different. Um, my I, I think you know being very vegetable forward and all that sort of thing is is good. But I also grew up in that kind of household where meat wasn't first. You know, right. vegetables were first. So it's sort of in my head from a family and childhood sort of thing, as opposed to adopting it today for the first time. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, it it seems it would be interesting because you know how vegetarian food is so often thought of as just cardboard that people eat so that they can say that they're eating healthily or whatever. Whereas I never saw it that way because I wasn't eating it to be healthy. I was eating it because that was the food on the table. Right. Um, and then it was really important that it tasted good. I would love to see that kind of uh, study to um, kind of find out how people view their, their vegetal vegetation. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That would certainly be interesting, uh, interesting to look at as well how when people have changes in terms of their diet, whether this be going vegan or vegetarian or Keep perhaps, going. or yes, or they have um, converted to a new religion that has a changed food. It's sort of what David was talking about, I think, in regards to dietary things. So one of the things that can happen, of course, is that some member of the household then can develop a medical medical condition where they need to eat differently right. or other kinds of dietary interventions. And one of our thoughts has been that when you are going to try to change that, to try to look at whether or not the types of cooks still hold. Like, so for, a, if a keen cook, you know, if you go vegetarian, right, then would a keen cook be more interested in, you know, exotic vegetables and different, more difficult cuisines and preparations and stuff, squash blossoms and stuff. Uh, but maybe a family first cook going vegetarian would be more interested in vegetables that kids like to eat, right? Or a traditional cook obviously looking for, and most traditional cuisines do have, are quite vegetable heavy, um, uh, how that would be different. But Certainly that's one of the things that I think should hold if anyone has to change what they're cooking for whatever reason. It's interesting to see if their type of cook still holds because some of that has to do with temperament of the person, I think, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that would be stable across changes. On the other hand, you have other people such as the um, widowed cook that I talked about earlier who then became a keen cook after she was no longer primarily just cooking the traditional cuisine. Now she was experimenting with all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you know, for some people, then they're, they, they, they are more changeable and flexible over time. So it would be kind of interesting to see, definitely interesting to see how people deal with change, whether it be for household, type of food they're eating, dietary restrictions, things like that. And that would be the longitudinal study to really look at that, I think. Well, thanks so much for talking to me today about uh, making dinner. And uh, I encourage everybody to go out and read this book because it's really, really fascinating. Yes. And um, so thank, thanks a whole lot. Thank you for having us. Thank it was really so a lot of fun.
as a Southerner, I look forward to visiting the Southern Food and Beverage Museum the next time we're in New Orleans. I see the Herb Saint uh, book behind you as well. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So let me know if you're coming, please. Definitely. <laughs> we will. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, let us know in the comments. This is Liz Williams.